If you guys would be so kind as to take your Bibles and turn to John 12, John chapter 12, that's where we've been. This morning, we're going to focus on verses 27 through 36a, 27 through 36a. After describing the pattern of a true disciple to some Greeks in the previous section, Jesus looks forward to the cross. He's pondering his hour that is now before him. He's pondering what will transpire and what he will experience, what he's going to go through at the cross. And he becomes struck with a a deep sense of dread and deep anxiousness, even anxiety. He is even tempted to go against his own teachings in verses 25 and 26. The Greeks might have been interested in being his disciples, and he kind of talked to them about, or at least talked to somebody who relayed the message to him about dying to self. And and here we see that he's even tempted to, to fail to die to self, to not want to die to self in spite of how he's about to die. He's tempted to love his life and preserve his life rather than die to himself. He's tempted to to avoid the hour, verse 23, and this hour, verse 27, which both refer to what he will experience at Golgotha on the cross in less than a week. And Jesus experienced these powerful emotions and the temptation to avoid the cross twice at the end of his ministry. Two times. The day of his, the day one of his Passion Week, that's Palm Sunday, when he was at the temple, that's what we've been looking at here in John 12. And on day five, Monday, Thursday, when he was at Gethsemane. Matthew 14, 32 through 36. Matthew 26, 36 through 42, and of course, Luke 22, 39 through 46, the synoptic gospels, all three of them record that instance where he cries out to the Father, take this cup from me. Great temptation to avoid the hour. How did Jesus deal with these scenarios, with these situations, with this great dread and anxiety and temptation to throw in the towel? What did he do? Well, he did what every follower of his, every true disciple should do when faced with great difficulty and temptation. Do you know what he did? Well, I'll give you the answer in a moment. This morning, we're going to look at five A's, five A's. And let's begin with the first A. Number one, the anguish of Jesus. The anguish of Jesus. We see this in verses 27 through 28a. Listen to what Jesus says. He's just gotten done explaining what the pattern of a true disciple is. It's death to self, dying to self, forfeiture of your own life. You know, Christianity is a throwaway life, as R.C. Sproul said. He gets done presenting this to them. And then he follows it immediately with this statement, Now is my soul troubled. And then he says, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. 28a, Father, glorify your name. 
How did Jesus deal with difficulty and temptation? What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. Verses 27 and 28 are a prayer. The sentencing is structured in the form of a prayer. Prayer should be the first thing we do in these situations. Prayer should be the first thing we do in all situations, before our feet touch the ground as we're getting out of bed. The Apostle Paul instructs us to be in constant prayer, right? He put it like this, to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 It's the idea of living a life of prayer and constantly communing and praying and, and speaking with the Father. Society tells us to turn to pills when we experience depression, anxiety, and anxiousness, etc., etc. Lord knows I spent 10 years in a very dark season of my life on antidepressants before I was saved. And I'm not saying if you're saved, boy, don't ever take medicine. I'm just saying that that's what our society says. It says take a pill for everything. Take a chill pill. There literally is chill pills. It's called Paxil and Zoloft, and there are chill pills. Our society is constantly pressing that on us. Take pills when you don't feel right, when you're depressed, when you're anxious. Turn to pills. Turn to medicine. And Jesus turned to the Father in prayer. And if it helped the one who suffered more than anyone else in human history, it can certainly help us. If we are susceptible, and I believe we all are, to falling into temptation, it's probably because we're not spending enough time in prayer or because we aren't praying for the strength to stand our ground in the midst of temptation. Luke 21, 36, Jesus tells the disciples, look, the, time, the hour is here. You better stay alert, stay awake, and pray that you don't fall into temptation. What did they do? They fell asleep, and when the enemy came and arrested Jesus, they fled. They didn't pass the test. They weren't strengthened to stand against the temptation. So often that's our problem. We're not spending enough time in prayer. We're not praying specifically for the strength to endure, to stand for the Lord. Now let's analyze the content of Jesus' prayer. The first thing he does, obviously, is express his emotional status. Now is my soul troubled the ISV, International Standard Version, puts it like this. Now is my soul in turmoil. Turmoil. We never even hear that word anymore. Turmoil. The NET, New English Translation, says, Now is my soul greatly distressed. As Jesus looked forward to, to the hour of His death, to the cross, He experienced soul trouble, turmoil, and great distress at the deepest possible level in the soul. The best word that I could think of to describe actually how he felt and what he's, what he's experiencing here is just anguish. By definition, anguish means to be extremely distressed about something. Synonyms for anguish are agony, pain, torment, torture, suffering, distress, angst, Misery, sorrow, grief, heartache, desolation, and despair. So the question becomes, what was it about the hour that had put him into this emotional status? What had caused this great distress? What had caused his soul so much anguish? I like what R. Kent Hughes wrote. He says, some say the reason our Lord was troubled was that He was contemplating the physical horrors of the cross, 
the cloud of flies bubbing above the cross, his flayed back unevenly pressed against the stake, the nails through the nerves of his hands and feet, the agony of constantly pulling himself up to get a breath. But if that's what we think the Lord was fearing, we do him an injustice because men in our own time have died more painful and more prolonged deaths than that. If it had been only physical pain he faced, Jesus would have received it with amazing calm. And I believe Mr. Hughes is correct. Early in his ministry, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples to go and preach the gospel and perform signs and wonders among the lost sheep of Israel, Matthew 10, 5 through 42. Before sending them out, he warned them about persecution, and he told them not to fear men, those who can destroy the body, but to fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell, verse 28. Jesus did not fear men, nor was he concerned about what they could do to him. I mean, he simply tells his disciples, don't fear men, which means I don't fear men, you shouldn't fear men. Since I don't fear men, I don't want you to fear men. I want you to have the same attitude and disposition that your Lord, I have, your King, as you go out. I want you to have the same mentality and attitude and disposition as you go. Don't fear them. Proclaim the gospel. Just do it. If you think about it, if they feared men, they would run for the hills at the first sign of trouble. They're out there preaching the gospel, the first person to persecute them, they'd be gone. They'd run. And yet if they feared the one who is truly worthy of fear, the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul, God, they would endure whatever men threw at them, threats, beatings, and even death. If it was not fear of man and being beaten and killed that generated this anguish in our Lord, what was it? What was it? What was it? Three things. Probably more, but I have three. First, Jesus is considering this as well as these other two things. At the cross... He will take upon Himself the sins of the world. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. People from every tribe and tongue. You just think about Jesus going to the cross and taking the sins of the world upon Himself. As a believer, my sin, my own personal sin, causes me great anguish. As a pastor, other people's sins cause me great anguish. But I cannot imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to bear the sins of the world at the cross. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around what that must have been like as he contemplated that. The very thought of this caused him deep anguish. Jesus never sinned. He was perfect. And yet, he was about to be subjected to sin in the most heinous way. God was about to make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. The scripture takes it beyond him just bearing the sin. It talks about him becoming sin. Like, in a sense, he becomes the ultimate sinner and not of his own doing. It's amazing that other people's sin grieved him so greatly, and yet we don't get disturbed over our own sin at times. <laughs> Unbelievers certainly don't even consider their sin. And here's Jesus a handful of days before the cross contemplating what it'll be like to bear the sins of the world. All of the murder, all of the illicit thoughts, all of the lust, all of the porn, all of the alcoholism, all of the sin, all of the rebellion, all of your rebellion, all of my rebellion. Him feeling anguish is a no-brainer. That's the first thing. Second, at the cross, Jesus will absorb the wrath of God against sinners. Sin is no small matter. It is cosmic treason against God. Since God is holy and just, He must punish sinners. He has to. The minute that He doesn't do that, the minute, that's the minute that He becomes unjust. He has to punish sin. He has to punish sinners. The punishment or wrath of God against sinners is no small matter. The existence of hell proves this. Hell is a place of eternal torment for the devil, demons, and unbelieving, unrepentant sinners. The cross also proves that God's wrath against sinners is no small matter. At the cross, God poured out His wrath against sinners on Jesus, who is our propitiation, substitute. At the cross, Jesus literally absorbed the wrath of God for all who believe, the elect, the bride, the church, the true Israel, the people of God. John Piper wrote, the substitute, propitiation, Jesus Christ, does not just cancel God's wrath, He absorbs it and diverts it from us to Himself. It's almost like God's wrath is a beam, a laser, and Jesus steps in front of it and absorbs the full blast of it so that it won't go beyond Him and penetrate and destroy those who have faith. The wrath of God is the most terrifying thing in all creation. This is why Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus understood that as the bearer of the world's sin, that He was to be made sin, He was about to fall into the hands of the living God. He was about to suffer and absorb the full blast and full strength of His wrath. The very thought of this, the very thought of this, caused him deep anguish. Bearing the sin caused him anguish. Bearing the wrath caused him anguish. Third, at the cross, Jesus will suffer separation. 
Jesus had not spent one single millisecond of his earthly life apart from his heavenly Father. But he knew that when he became sin for us on the cross, separation would occur. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says, The eyes of God are too pure to look on evil. The precise moment this happened at the cross is recorded in Matthew 27, verse 46. It says, And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? That's the moment all the sin is heaped on him and the Father turns his face. The fellowship that they enjoyed for 33 years, him as a man, broken, broken, broken. You see, sin separates people from God. The very thought of being separated from the Father for only a brief moment caused him deep anguish. Reminds me of that verse in How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It goes, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away. I think separation from the Father may have been what Jesus dreaded the most. And yet the atheist prides himself on separation. How foolish. The anguish of our Lord was certainly great in this moment, and the temptation to, to usurp or bypass, to go around, to get around the hour was also great. But Jesus remained steadfast and on mission. He said, and what shall I say? What, what, my soul is in deep anguish. What, what, what am I going to do about it here? Father, deliver me from this hour? Take me out of this situation? Is that what I'm supposed to, is that how I'm supposed to respond to this situation? This is his prayer. And he says, no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is why I'm here. This is why I have come. I have come to bear the sin. I have come to bear the wrath. I have come to experience separation. I have come to suffer for sinners. And he says, no, forget about all that. I'm going to go through with it. And he says, Father, glorify your name. Be glorified through what I'm about to do. It ain't about me. My paraphrase of 27 through 28a, Father, I am in turmoil and I do not want to endure the agonies of being the sin bearer, of absorbing the wrath, of being separated from you, but give me the cross. Give it to me. Why did Jesus submit to such horrendous suffering? So much so that he's tormented a week out from this. Why? First and foremost, for the glory of God. He states it right there. Father, glorify your name. Firstly, Jesus does all of this. He steps out of heaven and goes through all of this for the glory of God. But secondly, he endured the cross and went through these things because he loves us. Because he loves us. By way of 
application, if our soul becomes troubled, if we experience anguish, we need to think of the personal pain Jesus endured for our salvation and peace. We need to remember that as objects of redemption, He continues to lavish that same self-sacrificing care upon us as our great high priest. If we look to Jesus during these times, the one who suffered in his soul as we are suffering in our souls in that moment, he will strengthen us. The only way for him to be a good high priest is that he had to experience the same emotions, the same experiences, the same torment, the same torture, yet without sin. And he did. He's a good high priest. There isn't anything that you will go through in your life that he hasn't first gone through. He knows. He knows. Was Jesus' prayer heard? Absolutely. The second A. The affirmation of the Father, 28b through 30. Listen to this. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Verse 30, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 28b, the father responds to Jesus' prayer. He basically tells him, I have glorified my name through you, through your life, through your preaching, through your example, through your miracles. I have been glorified through you, son. And I will glorify my name again through your sacrificial death on the cross, through your burial, through your resurrection. This is what the father says to him. This is an affirmation from the Father to the Son. There are only three recorded instances in the New Testament where God speaks audibly to Jesus at His baptism, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, at His transfiguration. Remember, He went up to the top of a mountain. He was transfigured into His glorified state, a couple of... Uh, Disciples were there, and they were kind of blown away, and God tells one of them to shut up, Peter. He always spoke out of line. Matthew 17, 1 through 13, and at his temptation at the temple. That's what we're looking at here. Those are the three instances in the New Testament where the Father speaks down from heaven to Jesus. Right here is the third moment this happens. It is the temptation at the temple. The crowd, it was there, heard a sound coming down from heaven, but it couldn't discern what it was. Some said, maybe it was thunder. Others said, maybe an angel was speaking to him. While they were trying to figure out what had just occurred, Jesus interrupts them and says, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. And a question arises here. How could this voice, how could this audible thing, how could these words how could Jesus, the Father's affirmation to Jesus, how could it be for their sake if they couldn't understand what was said? I mean, they clearly couldn't understand the words. They thought it was a big noise or maybe some angelic speech. 
Someone speaks to me in a foreign language. They want to encourage me in a foreign language. How can I benefit if I can't understand what they're saying? No habla. Yeah, yeah that's me. I, 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 did he just call me a name? It sounds like it. I heard bun something in there. What does that mean? I mean, they're, they're listening and they can hear, and it's to their benefit, yet they can't understand. How can something that's said to you be a benefit to you if you can't understand what's being said? I mean, he, God had spoken loudly and clearly. He spoke in an intelligible language. It wasn't his fault that they couldn't understand. They couldn't comprehend his voice, and discern the sentence, the words. Why? Because of unbelief, because of hard-heartedness. They did not have ears to hear, even though what was spoken was in their own language. I think it's more like we don't care to hear it. MacArthur wrote, The issue is not that God is silent, but that fallen sinful people are spiritually deaf. You remember who this crowd is in just a handful of days. They're, they, they're going to go from yelling, Hosanna, save us now. Here's our king to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. These people were not people of faith. These people were not believers. They were not authentic. They were superficial. They wanted a conquering king, not a sacrificial one. The issue is never that God is silent. God has spoken. He has spoken very Clearly, but sinners' ears are stopped up. Sinners don't want to hear it. You're spiritually deaf. The prophet Isaiah put it like this, People are ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. Chapter 6, verse 9. The crowd's inability to comprehend God's voice was their own fault. The crowd's inability to comprehend Jesus' teachings and embrace Him as Messiah was their own fault. How are they going to understand the voice of the Father in this moment if they don't understand the voice of the Son who's standing right in front of them? This is a faith issue. If we do not have faith, we cannot discern the words of God. The fact is, these people love their sin and refuse to believe. And because of this, they had zero understanding of the things of God, zero understanding of true spiritual matters. God's voice is for our sake, for our benefit, but we must have ears to hear it, faith. Without faith, it is impossible to discern the truth. It is impossible to comprehend. It is impossible to understand. Why? Because the truth is spiritually discerned. So, God spoke clearly, but to them, it sounded like mumbling. And after Jesus tells them, hey, this is for your sake, not mine. I love that. Jesus is assured. He doesn't even need the Father to affirm Him. But the Father gives them an affirmation, but really the affirmation is for the people there's benefit. But they don't understand what's being said because they don't believe. Because they actually hate the one they're standing in front of. They just won't admit it at this point. After saying it's for you, not me, Jesus begins to teach the crowd. The third A, the achievements of Jesus' death. 
31 through 33, Jesus declares, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, look at all the present tense, now, now, right now, now is the judgment of this world, now, present tense, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And he says, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John adds, verse 33 is a benefit to us to discern or to help us understand what Jesus meant. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So lifted up is a reference to what? being lifted up on the cross. Here, Jesus briefly describes two things that will be achieved when He is lifted up from the earth, right? Verse 32, or crucified and killed on the cross, verse 33. Achievement number one, the world shall receive its judgment. When we see world in John's gospel, it refers to people in general or to the evil system that is in place with its demonic leadership. Here it carries the second meaning. This is the world in, in terms of rebellion against God, demonic forces, and it even includes unbelievers. The world as a philosophical ideology, the world as a way of life, the world as a way of living, the world. One point, the scripture says that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's the idea here. It's not referring to the people in general. It's not a generic term for all sorts of people. It has to do with the evil system that is in place with its demonic leadership. The judgment against the world, the evil system that is in place in its demonic leadership, has two features, spiritual disarmament and physical defeat. Spiritual disarmament and physical defeat. When Jesus died on the cross, God spiritually disarmed the forces of darkness. He did. He totally disarmed the demonic realm, in particular against His own people. The ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, a.k.a. the devil, Satan, Lucifer, what happened to him? He was cast out. That's what the text says. Jesus goes to the cross and dies on the cross. The world is judged. And in that judgment, spiritual authorities are disarmed and Satan is removed out of his power seat. This is what he says will happen. This is what happened. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul pointed to in Colossians 2.15. He said, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. The cross is the spiritual Gettysburg. At the cross, Jesus, the King, our General, defeats Satan. Gordon Rumble at Big Valley will tell you that is where Jesus removed Satan's teeth. Now he just, he just gums at us. <laughs> this is where his teeth were removed. This is where Satan was disarmed against God's people. Shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The cross is the place of Jesus' shame, but in reality it is the place of Satan's shame because there the victory is won. And this obviously means that the evil system that is in place and Satan and his pals have no weaponry that can spiritually destroy the people of God. 
his most formidable weapon has always been death. That is Satan's greatest weapon, death, the fear of death. But Jesus defeated death and removed its stinger at his resurrection, didn't he? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He just took his, Satan's greatest weapon and ripped it right out of his hands. We have no fear of death. Satan, you have no power over us. Your weapon doesn't mean anything to us. God has also delivered His people out of the world. This takes place at the cross when Jesus dies. There is a deliverance and a removal of His people in a spiritual sense out of the world. We are no longer under the power and evil system that is in place. We are no longer under Satan's control. Colossians 1.13 puts it like this. He has delivered, speaking of God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So not only has Satan been defanged, his weapon been rendered inoperable, we have been removed out of his realm and placed in the kingdom of Christ, spiritually. When Jesus died on the cross, God also set in motion the physical defeat of the world, right? The evil system that is in place, and actually the entire physical world. The clock is ticking. Right there, the timer begins. When Jesus breathes His last breath on the cross, the stopwatch is clicked. Now it's counting down. Now it's counting down. Jesus will soon return the second advent, and when he does, he will physically defeat every enemy and nation, every rebel nation, every rebel person, every rebel spiritual body, every principality. He will establish his kingdom. He will incarcerate the devil and the demons for at least a thousand years. He will turn them loose, and then after that moment, he will permanently defeat them by casting them into the lake of fire, their ultimate demise and destruction. These are the things that were accomplished, achieved, some of the things that were achieved at the cross when Jesus died. You see, when the world executed Jesus on the cross, it thought it had won. Look, we got rid of him. It thought it was victorious. What it actually did was activate God's judgment and seal its doom. Don't you love the sovereignty of God? just how he wires all this stuff together and utilizes it to accomplish his sovereign purposes. When the world thinks it's winning, it just committed suicide. That's the first achievement. The second achievement, it's simpler and shorter. Jesus shall draw all people to himself. Jesus knew that his death on the cross, remember, it's a week away. He knew that when he died on the cross... It would draw people to him for salvation from every tribe and tongue. He knew that it would, it, it would also, his death on the cross would not only draw people from every tribe and tongue. It's not literally all people because all people don't get saved, but it's people from every tribe and tongue, a vast number, Revelation 7, 9. But he knew that it would draw them to him. The cross is the symbol and, and the drawing through the Holy Spirit. He knew that, but he also knew that his death would secure for those people salvation. He knew this. He's looking forward to it. He says, I know when I die there, a great number of people are going to come to me by faith through grace. 
You see, the the Jewish and Roman authorities intended to make a a public spectacle of Jesus, right? By by nailing him to a cross at the top of a hill that, that overlooked the temple. What they actually did is create the most effective visual advertisement in human history. That's what they did. What has this become the symbol of? Salvation. Another way that God, in His sovereignty, wires and maneuvers and structures things in such a way that that evil act committed against Jesus was the greatest advertising campaign for salvation in the history of the world. How must we be saved? How can we be saved? How might we be saved? We must come to the cross. It's so wonderful. And as a side note, and if I would have known this last week, too bad I didn't realize it. As a side note, if pastors, if church leadership, and how many of you listened to last week's message, or you at least were here? Almost nobody. (laughs) Holy crud. Okay, you're just afraid to put your hands up, because I'm going to call on you now. What was point three? I can't call on you, because I don't remember. Um, But think about this for a moment. Think about what Jesus has said, and how great this would have dovetailed with last week's message, but I'm doing it now, right? Because I'm the pastor, I can do what I want, (laughs) with elder approval. Think about this. If pastors want to see their congregations grow numerically, they need to stick to the message of the cross and drop the gimmicks and consumerism because Jesus said he draws people to himself through the cross. Has Satan not tricked pastors throughout the world into thinking that we got to have snow hills and egg drops and all of this fluff and crap and garbage and stupidity and spending millions of dollars on junk? That is the, that is the work of Satan. He's got us believing that the only way that we can draw in people is to have a bunch of accoutrements and all these goofy, silly things that are going to attract them. Stick to the cross! Jesus said, I will draw men to myself through the cross. That nasty message of death, somehow it attracts flies. I know, I was buzzing around it 20 years ago. What's up with this? I can get saved? Stick to the cross. Stick to the cross. Stick to the gospel. Stick to the gospel. It's what the Lord prescribed. Amen? I'll get more passionate about my sub point than I am the rest of my sermon. Let's go back and re-preach last week. Just add that in there. Fourth A. Fourth A. The antipathy of the crowd. Verse 34. Look at the crowd's response to Jesus' teaching. So the crowd answered him, um... Pardon me, sir. They've got the gray poupon. We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, who is this Son of Man you speak of? We're not familiar with Him. So the crowd totally understands what Jesus meant. They understood that He had just said, I'm going to die. And when I die, all of this stuff's going to happen. They got it. They knew what he was referring to. They knew that he was speaking of his hour. His hour was his death on the cross. They couldn't get their mind around it. They couldn't conceive it. They didn't agree with him. They couldn't reconcile Jesus' prediction of his death with their belief that the Son of Man, Messiah, was to be a triumphant conqueror. The crowd overlooked the clear teaching of the Old Testament that at his first advent, Messiah would come to die as a sacrifice for sins. 
The most detailed Old Testament passage on Messiah's death is in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, an entire chapter's worth there. It just talks about what the Messiah will do and how he'll lay down his life. It predicts that Messiah will be what? Pierced for our transgressions. What's a transgression? Sin. It predicts that he will be crushed for our iniquities. What's an iniquity? Sin. But the crowd totally missed passages like this. Very deliberately, too. Yeah, that's, that's just not my view. That's not the view that I like of Messiah. I like this Davidic conquering kind of view of him. That's, that's my theology. I don't like this one. I don't like what God has declared about marriage, man and a woman. I like, I like this view of marriage between man and man and, and, you know, how people pick and choose, right? You know, this, this is, yeah, that, that, that part's cool, but that's not really, that's not what it means. What I like is I like this. I like the conqueror. This is what they were doing. They didn't like the suffering servant, they just wanted the conqueror. And they totally missed it. They were guided by Zionism, a strong desire to be physically delivered, right, from the Romans and and established as a superior nation above all nations. That nationalistic pride that was there. Man, we deserve it. We're the people of God. Make us better than all. Come, Messiah, and destroy all our enemies, and and then put the spotlight on all of us and make us the glory of the world. This is their attitude. And this mentality, this disposition, this wrong view of the Old Testament blinded them from their true spiritual reality, that they were indeed dead in sin and needed to be cleansed, forgiven, and reconciled to God through Jesus. They mockingly said to the Lord, who is this son of man that you speak of? We're we're just not familiar with that version. Who is it? Who is it? Describe to us who he is, because we don't know who that one is. He's not in the scripture. Jesus had already answered this question and explained how he is the son of man, how he is Messiah, how he will lay down his life, how that's all scriptural. He has already explained these things to the cows come home. He has said it over and over and over and proved it over and over and over through countless signs and wonders during his ministry. And yet, instead of explaining it once more, he warns the crowd. Look, look, we're not, we're not, we're not doing any more Q&As. My hour has come. You need to stop playing games, and you need to listen to me. Let's move to our last A. Five, the admonishment to believe. Verses 35 through 36a. Tell us about this son of man. We're not familiar with him. Who is it? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Last verse. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is what Jesus says to them. Tell us about the Son of Man. No, I'm going to tell you, you need to believe. Speaking of his impending death, Jesus admonishes or warns his hearers that it would be only for a little while longer that the light, a reference to himself as the light of the world, would be among them. Just a little while longer, I'll be here. 
He tells them to walk while they still had the light with them so that darkness would not overtake them because he who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. In an era before electric lights or even gas lights, people traveled only during daylight hours when they could see clearly and walk safely. And it was very, very dangerous to walk at night in Palestine. There were robbers and fierce animals and just it was just a bad situation. The Good Samaritan scenario might be an actual real thing that took place. You didn't have street lights, you didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And Jesus likened those who failed to heed his warning to travelers caught out after nightfall, lost in the pitch blackness of a starless, moonless night. The only way for them to avoid being lost in spiritual darkness was, while they still had the light, to believe in the light. And the glorious promise to those who do this is that they will become sons of light. This is what Jesus says. The sobering truth, and MacArthur said this, the sobering truth is that when sinners persistently reject Jesus, God may ultimately remove His grace and judge them. Those who reject Jesus, never embracing Him in saving faith, will inevitably face God's vengeance, wrath, and judgment in eternal punishment. So Jesus just very plainly tells them, I am the light, I am here. Embrace me. You can see me, you can hear me. I'm here to illuminate. Embrace me now by faith. Quit asking the questions. Quit going back and forth. Quit depending on your false view of Scripture. Embrace the light that you might become sons and daughters of light. That's what's imperative. That's what's important to you right now. This is what he says. While knowing that Just devastation will come their way if they fail to believe. Closing. At the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world, yours and mine. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God against sinners. You and me. At the cross, Jesus suffered separation from God so that those who believe will never be separated from God. He is our propitiation. He is our replacement. He suffered all that we were owed, and He did it in our place and absorbed our penalty, our punishment. Let that sink down inside. Let that gospel reality and truth transform your life. These are some of the things that he accomplished at the cross. He took your sin. He took your wrath. He took your separation. How liberating. Through the death of Jesus, God has judged the world, disarmed spiritual adversaries, Cast out the ruler, the devil. He's defeated. He doesn't have any teeth. He goes around roaring like a goes around like a roaring lion, but 
his darts, his attacks. Ultimately, he can't impact us and he can't hurt us and he can't lead us astray, but he can never devour and destroy and ruin our salvation. He can never take it away from us. And that's how his fangs have been removed. The power that he held over death has been taken away from him. We don't have to fear death or anything else. It's pretty wise, though, to put on spiritual Kevlar every day as you go out into the world and live your life and do your job, put on the armor of God, because he'll still attack. He still aims to destroy and kill and harm. He can mess up your life. He can mess up your family. Don't give him a foothold. But ultimately, he has been cast out. And his days are numbered. His days are numbered. Through the death of Jesus, God set in motion the physical defeat of the world. Every enemy, every nation shall be brought to utter ruin at the second advent. You think about the defeat of Satan which is complete in spiritual terms, but has a physical component that will come later. And you think of Jesus' victory over the world, which in spiritual terms is complete, but has a physical reality later. He's still won. He has won. He has won. And I just say rejoice, O people of God. Our King has won the victory. Do we walk in daily victory? Through the death of Jesus, Jesus is drawing people to himself for salvation. Every tribe and tongue, people from everywhere, all walks of life, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all languages. This is what he's doing. It's still going on now. He's still using the cross to draw sinners to himself. You have not yet come to Jesus for salvation. If you have not yet bowed the knee at the foot of the cross and accepted him and believed in him by grace, do it now while the light of the gospel is still burning bright. Come to the light of the world while there is still gospel light in the world. If you do this, Jesus says, you will become a son or daughter of light. In other words, you're not going to be in the darkness any longer. You will be in His light. You will not be in the world any longer. You will be in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. And yet if you continue to disregard Jesus' admonishment, what He told the crowd, God may remove His grace from you. He may judge you. You will face His vengeance, wrath, and judgment, which is no small matter. These things terrified Jesus, and he was perfect. We're not perfect, and they should terrify us even more. <laughs> you think about this. Killing Jesus on the cross was the devil's greatest military blunder in his war against God. It was his fatal mistake. It has brought destruction upon his realm and upon his soldiers, and upon himself. And yet, refusing to believe in Jesus will be your greatest spiritual blunder. Don't do it.
Don't do it. Believe in Jesus now. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not the next day, not next week, not next month. Now, today, believe. Call upon the Lord. Call upon the Lord. Call upon Him. Confess your sin to Him. Ask Him to save you. He is a good and faithful Savior, and He will do that. He will do that without a doubt. And He will be your Lord. He will be your King. You'll begin to live victoriously over sin, Satan, death, and hell. It's the best life that you could possibly ever have. Osteen's selling you a lie. The best life you could ever have is one in which you're dying to yourself, not exalting yourself. What I said last week, man, you believe now, today, today's the day of salvation for you, become a true disciple. Begin dying to yourself and exalting Christ and exalting His kingdom. Exalt His will, which we see in Scripture, above your own will. That's what you do. Begin to live for Him in this community, in the context of a community, not on your own, with us, with us. Amen? For the rest of us, be encouraged. If you have anguish, bring it to Him. But remember who He is and what He did at the cross. 2,000 years ago, man, He won the victory. Boy, did He ever, and He's coming back to finalize it, to finish it, right? It's like at the cross, the inauguration began. He's going to take office when he comes back. Game on. Are you ready for him to come back? We always say, yeah, 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 but are our lives in order? Are they? Be ready. Remember the parable of the ten virgins? Only five had enough oil. Only five were ready. The other five, they thought they were ready. They weren't. Be ready for his return. Have your affairs in order. Get your life together. If you're not in a fellowship, get in a fellowship. Join this church. Become part of this. Whatever it is that you need to do. If your relationship is out of sync with God's will, get it in sync. Bow to Him and submit to Him. Make Him the sovereign in every area of your life. Work on that. That's what we're working on doing together here. Living for Him. It's not easy, but if we work together, it's certainly much more possible. Amen? Be ready for Him. He's coming. He's won. When he comes back, he comes with an army. He's coming. Be ready. Be ready.